philosophies, ideologies, there's our workplaces, our kids, our spouses, our neighborhoods, our houses, our cars, whatever it is, Lord, but we want to be a church that stands on Jesus. We want to be a church that leans on you, that, that makes you our rock and not all the other rocks of this world. God, you are our rock. We pray um, for other churches this morning around Richmond Hill that are worshiping in the name of Jesus. We pray that you would be with them. We pray that you'd be with their gospel message, that they would preach the word to your people, that your people would be empowered, God, that we, along with other gospel-preaching churches in this city, would um, reach the people of Richmond Hill for the name of Jesus. God, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we stand up under your word. God, I am inadequate to preach this word. I pray that you would quicken our hearts, God, that you would illuminate your word, that you would poke at areas of our life that need to be prodded. God, that you would offend us in a good way with the gospel, that we would respond on Monday, Lord, um, with the truths that you teach us today. God, let us be people that um, walk after you, that walk by your spirit, that walk under your word, that, that, that trust in Jesus, Lord. And, and God, we're here this Sunday, we're here next Sunday, we're here on Sunday until you come again, Jesus. God, we're celebrating your resurrection. We're looking forward to that day when you come again, God, and return in glory, Jesus. So until then, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Have a seat. Well, if any of y'all noticed, I had a false start up here. Came up before we were done. Um, that, was, that, was, uh, that was my wife's fault. She, she, she was like, you're going to get up there? So I guess I should. And I came up. and So shameless, uh, you know, blame, blame somebody else, right? Um, my name is Coleman Collins, uh, and I am the, I guess I'm the associate pastor here, right? Assistant pastor, assistant of the assistant, um, any of y'all that, that like the office. Um, so that's me, I'm Dwight, uh, and it is a, a pleasure to be with you this morning uh, to preach the word. I, I, golly, I feel so inadequate for this task, but one of the things I was just resting in this week and, and joyful in is that we are in a church that preaches through the scripture. So last week, I didn't have to sit down and try to figure out what to tell you. I just had to study the Word uh, and let it tell me what to tell you. Um, and so if you're new with us or first couple of weeks, you're trying to figure out who we are, we just preach through books of the Bible. That's what we do. Um, and it's not because we think it's the only way to do it. Uh, it's primarily because we don't know what you need, but God does. And we also know ourselves. Like, I know that if I have to pick the topic for this week, I'm not going to pick the hard topics. I'm going to pick the things that make you laugh and make you smile and make you go, hmm, and make you like me, right? Um, but if we preach through books, we're going to have to get to hard texts. And this week is a little bit of a hard text. Um, it's kind of offensive. Um, and God willing, I'm not going to lighten that offense. I'm going to say it in a way that really pokes at us and that, that shows us the glory of Jesus. So um, one quick note, uh, I'm not going to have any slides this week. Uh, for those of you that are slide people, um, we're going to try it out. Uh, my goal, Andrew's goal, is that you have one of these. Um, that you bring it with you, that you read it, or you have it on your phone, that's fine. That's fine. This is better, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> you know my stance on that already. I've made it clear, but that's fine. But I, we want you to see it in your hands. What I've noticed over my years as a Christian is that if I see it on a screen, it's in one ear or the other. But if I see it in the Word, I can return to it. I can come back. I remember where it is on the page. I see it in context. When Coleman gets boring, you can start reading other things here, right? I give you permission. If, you lo if I lose you, just start reading somewhere in the Bible. You'll be fine. Um, so we want you to bring your Bibles, and if you don't have one, we have a table with Bibles out there. We'd love for you to take one with you um, or borrow one on Sunday mornings. So we're in a series through Acts. We're in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to read through the whole, pretty much the whole chapter. But let me give you a little outline before we jump in, table of contents. So the first thing we're going to look at in the first section of chapter 4, so go ahead and turn there now, Acts chapter 4, is the bluntness of the gospel. 
the bluntness of the gospel. The second thing we're going to look at is the blindness of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was this council of, of Jews that led Israel. And the third thing we're going to see at the very end is the boldness of the disciples. So this first section, y'all look with me in, in Acts 4. Let me give a little context for this. So this, this passage is tied to chapter 3 that Andrew preached last week. I remember what happened in chapter 3. Who got healed? The lame man. He was a lame beggar. And how long had he been lame? 40 years. His whole life he'd been lame. He grew up in Jerusalem. He was lame. Everyone who lived in Jerusalem knew him. Like you had, you had 40-year-old men that knew him as a child, knew he was lame, and then all of a sudden Peter John come, John come in and healed the man. Okay? So this wasn't some stunt. This wasn't like a tent revival where you call up your buddy and say, hey, cop in a wheelchair for me. Come down to the stage so I can lay hands on you and heal you. Now, I'm not saying that's what happens every time. God heals today. But I'm saying this was legitimately legitimate. And everyone in Israel knew it. And there was a riot, basically. All these people were gathering around, and Peter and John preached the gospel, and 2,000 people come to know Christ. How many people are in this room? About 210. You got 2,000 people. Like, that is a ton of people, not just that listen, but that come to know Jesus and are added to the church. This is a massive thing. And the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council that put Christ to death, they're angry. They're mad. And so what we see when we enter into chapter 4 is they rush onto the scene, right? There's this commotion. There's this hubbub. They hear the name of Jesus is being preached. So they come on and they arrest Peter and John, okay? And that tells you something about the Sanhedrin. Like, this isn't some local First Baptist of Jerusalem council of deacons that has their hair on fire, right? They have a prison, right? Like, when we build a church one day, we're not going to build a prison in the church, okay? But they had a prison. We might. But they, they had a prison, and they had a, like a police force for the temple, and they come out and they arrest them. Like, think about how scary that is. And they bring them in, and they put them in jail overnight, and they call them before the council the next day. And get this, it mentions some of the names here. You'll look out for them when we read it. Annas and Caiaphas. Do you all remember who they were? Those are the two men that met with Jesus that sent him to Pilate. They're the ones responsible for the death of Christ. So they bring Peter and John, and Peter and John know this, and so they're trying to intimidate them. They're trying to threaten them. They're saying, hey, do you remember two months ago? We brought your Lord here. Remember what happened to him? If you don't shut up, this is going to happen to you as well, right? So that's the scene we have here. And what I want you to see when we do this is the bluntness. In, the, in spite of that, look how blunt the gospel is that Peter and John preach to this powerful council. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. And they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers, rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. And get this, get this, these next two verses. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
All right, let me read verses 11 and 12 again for us, because this is where we're going to hone in on here. So they're standing before this powerful council who can send them to their death, and they say, you rejected him. This Jesus is the stone that you rejected, but he's become the cornerstone anyway. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let me tell you, the gospel it offends before it invites, Okay? And there are a lot of invitational gospels out there that churches are preaching. And, and we could preach that way. I could tell you all about the Father's love for you. I could tell you all about the benefits and the joys of heaven. I could tell you all about the Holy Spirit. But if I don't offend you first, then you haven't heard the real gospel. Because there's no reason you need Jesus if I'm just inviting you to the Father's love, right? I have to first tell you that there's a reason. You, you need salvation, right? He's telling these, these religious figures, he's saying, guys, you, you are heading for the wrath of God. If you don't get salvation, then you're gone. You're, you're going to hell. You need salvation. The gospel must offend before it invites. And yet, it's so easy to preach a softball gospel. It's so easy to, to skip over the hard parts of the gospel. The gospel is offensive. It's blunt. It comes and it hits us where we don't want to be hit. It, it starts poking at areas of our life that we don't like. And the two areas that this gospel is offensive to us in modern day are, are these two concepts. The first one is that people are evil. And the second one is there's only one way, okay? And the reason it offends our culture is because whether you know it or not, our culture lives, religiously lives on two philosophies. I'm going to name them for us. Humanism and pluralism. Raise your hand if you've heard either of those words before. Humanism and pluralism. Anybody want to define them for me? I'm kidding. Um, humanism and pluralism. So I'm going to talk about humanism first, okay? This isn't a philosophy lesson. Don't worry. We're, we're, we're from the word. Humanism is the belief that our culture in, in, the, in the West has that we are basically good, that you're good, I'm good, everyone's good, that we mean well, we have good hearts, and that the person that goes bad, the, the murderer, the rapist, whoever it is, they, they go bad because they were put in the wrong environment. If they, you took them, that murderer, out of their, maybe they had a bad father, a bad mother, or bad schoolmates, if you took them out of that environment and put them in the petri dish of a privileged life, then they would turn out better, right? Have you all heard something like that before? And, and, the, and that the reason you are the way you are is because of your environment, but you're basically good. Right? So everyone is good, but the Bible utterly rejects that. The gospel says that we actually are basically evil. That from your birth, from my birth, my heart is wicked and wayward and wandering. That God made me for his glory, and yet I've gone my own way, lived by my own rules. I am evil, and I need salvation. Try telling that, that to somebody in the street, right? You're wicked. You're evil. You're not as good as you think you are, right? We are desperate for salvation. The second way it offends our culture is pluralism. Pluralism is the philosophy that though there might be one religion or one way that's better than the others, that at the end of all things, if there really is a God, then he's just going to wink and nod at all of us. If you did the best you could with what you had, whether you were a really good Hindu, a really good Muslim, a really good atheist, a really good agnostic, a really good person that doesn't care, a really good nun, as they call them in our society, right? Whatever you were, if you did the best you could with what you had, God, Jesus is just going to wink and close his eyes while you walk by him into heaven. That's pluralism, right? That's what our culture believes. But pluralism, unfortunately, for a lot of us, with compassionate pluralism is, is against the gospel. The gospel totally rejects pluralism. It says there is no other name. There's only one God. There's only one king. There's only one Jesus that came to earth and died for your sins. The question I want to answer is why? Like, why is God being picky? 
Like, is he just being picky? Like, why? Is he just like skipping over? He's like, I'm going to create all these religious societies and mislead people. I'm going to pick one that's going to be my real society. I'm going to put all these fakes out there. Is that what God did? No. It's not what he did at all. The reason that there's only one way is because only one God deals with your biggest problem, right? There is only one person that deals with your biggest problem, which is sin. You and I and the world deserves hell, right? We deserve the wrath of God. It's coming for us, and only one way is the way of salvation, and that's the way of Christ. Think about Noah. So back in the flood, right? There's this giant flood coming, the flood of the wrath of God, and, and mankind deserved wicked. Mankind had gotten wicked beyond measure, and God said, I just need to start over. They're destroying themselves. They're destroying one another. They're destroying this earth. I'm going to start over, but I'm going to provide a way of escape for anyone that would stand up under it. So he told Noah to build an ark, right? So Noah takes 120 years to build a giant boat in the desert. Talk about crazy. How many of you have been to that ark thing in Kentucky? Anybody? It's, it's pretty small, isn't it? I know, it's massive. It's huge. It's this giant ark in the desert for 120 years. And that whole time, 2 Peter is telling us that he was a herald of righteousness. He was telling everyone around him, hey, you think I'm crazy. God is sending a flood to wipe out mankind. Get on the boat with me. Come on, get on the boat, right? He's telling everyone he can, get on the boat because God's going to wipe it out. Get on before God shuts the door because there's rain coming, right? People thought he was nuts, right? There's no flood. There's never been a flood in the history of earth. Like, why is there going to be a flood? I'm fine, man. Maybe some people were like, well, maybe it will flood, but my house is built up on a cliff. I'll be okay. Or maybe some people are like, well, I got my own boat. Got one in the backyard. Like when the flood comes, me and my family will hop on the John boat. We'll put some umbrellas up. We'll be fine, right? But at the end of the day, no one hopped on the ark with Noah, and Noah and his family were the only ones that were saved. See, God provided a way out of his mercy. He didn't have to. In the same way, God has provided a way in Jesus, Right? The, the one way that, that feels offensive to our culture is a mercy by the power of God, that he has provided a way for us to escape judgment and to live with him forever. He's inviting us. He's inviting the world. He's inviting your, your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends back into relationship with him. Right? God is not needlessly picky. So what does this mean for us? Um, whether you know it or not, as a Christian, I'm talking to Christians in the room, those of you that are walking with Jesus, whether you know it or not, you have been affected by this philosophy, okay? You've been affected by pluralism. You've been affected by humanism. You, deep down, part of you believes that people are basically good. And part of you believes that there should be more than one way. And that if God only makes one way, then he's not merciful. He's not just. That's not right. It doesn't feel right to me. And the reason is, is that culture is like oxygen. How many of you have heard that before? Right? Culture is like oxygen. It's around you. You're breathing it in, and we're affected by it. Um, I started making bread recently, okay? Uh, how many of you have made sourdough bread before? All right, there we go. A couple of hands. Uh, some of you men make sourdough bread, and you just don't want to raise your hand. Um, it's a manly thing to do, okay? Uh, so, but the way you make a starter, which is the yeast, is you mix up some dough and water, and you set it on the counter, and it's clean. But as it's sitting there on the counter, you put a lid on it. It's pretty airtight, but bacteria from the air latch onto the dough and start eating it, Okay? And it starts eating this dough until eventually it's eaten all the dough and it's just left with this ball of acid, okay, with this live bacteria that's hungry. And then you feed it more dough. So that's what happens. When you put this yeast into bread, it eats up the bread, right? The bacteria infects it. It doesn't matter how airtight your container is, that bacteria is getting in and it's going to start eating away at the dough. The same way we live in America. We live in a lavish culture that's filled with luxury and filled with, with hey, your truth is your truth. Whatever you want to believe is fine. And, and, and it'll begin eating away at your convictions if you're not careful. 
Like the culture will start eating away at your doctrine. It'll start eating away at your beliefs. And pretty soon, you're going to look just like the rest of the culture. You'll have no idea what this says. And if you read it, you wouldn't believe it, right? So Christian, we need to be careful that we are, we are diligent to study the word, that we're standing on the word, that we're, that we're, that we're rejecting the, the pluralism, the humanism of our society, and that this is our source of truth. But the gospel is blunt. Let me ask you, are you offended by the gospel? Like, are you offended by the doctrine of sin and of wickedness and of hell and of one way? Does that offend you? And if it does, I'd encourage you, get in the, the word more. Ask God for help to, to show you his mercy in the midst of the gospel. So that's the first point. All right, let's keep reading. We're going to move on to the second. So we're in verse 13 now, the blindness of the Sanhedrin. So what I want us to look for, Luke is emphasizing in this how blind these Sanhedrin are, okay? So look at all the evidences as we read. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, right? They were shocked. Like, how dare these these hicks, right? These Galileans with no education come to us and tell us we're wrong. They were astounded. That's the first miracle is that God changed these Galilean fishermen that were uneducated into these people that are expertly arguing for the gospel. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Okay, check that out. We cannot deny it. They're saying a true, verifiable miracle happened yesterday. A lame man was healed. It wasn't a parlor trick. It wasn't some kind of magic going on out there. That happened. But what do they say? But in order that it may spread no further, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone. They have no desire for the truth. All they want to do is silence the truth because it doesn't line up with their way of life. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The blindness of the Sanhedrin. They were utterly blind. Like Christ had come and lived the perfect life for three years, had done countless miracles, had, had been raised from the dead. They couldn't prove that wrong either. There's a man standing in front of him healed, and they still can't see it. Like they're looking at the man. These, some of these Sanhedrin probably knew him from birth, and he's walking. They can't explain it, and yet they refuse to look. It's like they're blind. Why are they blind? 2 Corinthians 4 5 tells us that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the truth. But why? Like, why are they blind? I think they're blind because they don't want to be disrupted. They don't want their lives to be affected by this gospel. If, if Christ had come and said, hey, y'all can keep the current order. Y'all can keep your authority. You can keep your lives. You can keep your paycheck. You can keep your houses. You can keep the respect from the community. You can keep it all and just tack me on, then they would have been fine with it. They would have worshipped him. They would have made him the Messiah. But when Christ came, he disrupted everything for them. He told them that they've got to take up their cross and follow him. He told them that they've got to deny themselves. He told them that they've got to quit teaching against him. They, they told them they've got to quit tying up heavy burdens for people. He told them they need to totally take a right turn and live life differently. It was going to disrupt their lives as so they put Christ to death. And here are Christ's disciples, Peter and John, threatening to disrupt them all over again. 
right? Their desire to, be, not, to not be disrupted was greater than their desire for the truth. They were only interested in supporting evidence for their current way of life, right? Think about that in your own life. Right? They weren't interested in the truth. They were just interested in supporting evidence for their current way of life. And guys, if we're not careful, we can be the same. Like we can warp and twist and form the gospel to fit the way that we want to live, and then we can package it that way. So anything you hear, anything I'm saying that Andrew's saying, kind of goes through that filter of like, I don't want this to change me, disrupt me, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of shift things around a little bit so I can keep living the way I want to live. Right? That's our hearts. Like, does anyone else see that in you? I see that in me. Anyone else? Right? That, that is my heart. Right? I will twist things. I will twist the truth. I'm not interested. We're, we're like Captain Jack Sparrow. Anybody a Pirates of the Caribbean fan in this room? Um, Captain Jack Sparrow, what, where did his compass point? Whatever he wanted, right? He had a compass that pointed wherever he wanted it to go, okay? And, and, and what was the captain of the Black Pearl? Y'all remember? Barbosa, that's right. So Barbosa was always flabbergasted that Captain Jack Sparrow could find his way to the Black Pearl no matter how well he hit it because he had that compass, right? So he would like walk around like following the compass and it always pointed what he wanted most. Sorry, what happened? He got trapped on an island. And why wouldn't it point towards the Black Pearl? Come on, guys. He wanted the rum, right? There was rum there, right? And so Elizabeth had to burn all the rum so the compass would point back to the Black Pearl again, right? Because he wanted the rum more than they wanted the Black Pearl, right? That is our hearts, okay? Your truth meter in your heart is always going to point the direction of your desire, right? Admit it. Okay, you're going to change things. You're going to twist things. You have a wayward heart. You're going to change them so they fit your desire. We have a compass inside of us that is broken. And you don't like to hear that because you and me, I, I trust my sniffer. Like I trust that I can sniff out truth and error pretty good, right? But I shouldn't because I'll twist it. I'll warp it. I'll make it fit what I desire. Guys, we need a truth outside of ourselves, right? You, in your own wisdom, cannot navigate this life. You need a truth outside of yourself to help you navigate this world. You need the Holy Spirit in you. You need God's people around you. You need God's Word constantly in front of you, day and night in front of you. You need Christ underneath you as your cornerstone. Are you standing on Him as your truth? Are you getting pulled this way and that by the culture and by your desires and by people and by all these things? And you're, you're pretty much drawn and quartered by this, by this culture, are you standing firmly on the truth? There's something else in this passage as well. Look back at verse 11 for me. So Peter says, this Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, has become the cornerstone. Do you want to know what a quarterstone is? Um, a cornerstone, they, they didn't have slabs, concrete back in that day. So right now, when you, when you build a building, you lay a concrete slab. How many of you have been on veterans recently? Anybody? Those giant, they laid a slab, these giant slabs. They built those huge, whatever they are, like shipping things, right? But they lay a slab first. They didn't have slabs. They didn't have concrete. So what they would do is the builders would go and they'd find a cornerstone. And this cornerstone, they would shape it to be perfectly square. There's this massive, strong stone. And the builders would go around and they would walk through all these potential cornerstones to pick the best one. And what they would do is that when they found it, they would have a big celebration. They'd have a party. They would they'd have a big feast. They would have sacrifices, and they would kill the sacrifice and put them under the cornerstone. They would write things on the cornerstone, and they would place the cornerstone in its place, right? And, and it was important because the cornerstone was the reference point for the whole rest of the structure. So they placed it in the corner, and they would line every other stone up according to where the cornerstone was. So if the cornerstone was a degree off, 
the whole building would be 10 degrees off, right? If the cornerstone was weak, the whole building would collapse. The cornerstone was vital. Everything else was laid in reference. I think for us, that's a good analogy for our lives. Are you laying the stone of your life, if you've got a family, are you laying the stone of your family in reference to the cornerstone of Christ? Or are you laying it in reference to your workplace? Are you laying it in reference to your family, your wife, your kids, your desires? What are you laying your life in reference to? Christian, I encourage you, it's got to be the cornerstone of Christ. If it's any other stone, then you're going to be way off. You're going to be wandering. You're going to be floundering in this world. But there's a, another message here as well. The image that Peter gives is, is that these Sanhedrin saw Christ, the perfect cornerstone, and said, he doesn't fit with my life. And so they walked past him. Right? It says they rejected him. The stone, Jesus is the stone, and you rejected him, the builders. But God made him the cornerstone anyway, didn't he? Regardless of what the Sanhedrin did, God made Christ the cornerstone. And for, for some of you in the room, um, you have rejected Christ. You've walked right past him. You've said, that would disrupt my life too much. I'm not going to follow him. I'm not going to give him my life. He's God no matter what you decide about him. So I call you today. Come to him. Explore. Like if you're an agnostic, if you don't know, if you haven't figured out where you land on issues of faith, this is vital. Christ is God no matter whether you think he's God or not. So decide. Make a decision. Explore the faith. I'd call you to Christ. So he's the cornerstone. We need something outside of ourselves for truth. Let's look at the third point, um, the boldness of the disciples. Um, so look in, in um, chapter 4, verse 23. So Peter and John get persecuted. They get threatened. They get told, hey, what happened to Jesus is going to happen to you if you don't stop preaching. And they said this, when they were released, they went with, to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, when the church heard it, they went back to the church. When the church heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. They said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, pause real quick, no, this is a lot, but what he's saying is, is this is a prophecy a thousand years ago that you made through David. So they're about to reference Psalm 2, who said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All right, so what they're saying right here is they're saying, listen, as they're praying, first, Peter and John go to the church. They don't go home. They don't go to the kids, their wife. They go to the church. They say, this is what has happened to us. And they're scared. The church is scared. Peter and John are scared. They're not this like fearless people, right? They're, they're shaking in their boots. They're like, what do we do now? And so they start praying and they start worshiping. And someone stands up in the, in the assembly and they start praying and everyone's agreeing. And they say, sovereign Lord. They start praying to God. And, they, and then someone else in the assembly probably starts bringing up Psalm 2. It comes to mind. And so they quote Psalm 2. And then they start seeing that Psalm 2 is what happened. Like back a thousand years ago in David, God said, when I send my son to come die, that the, 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 the Gentiles are going to rage against Christ. That the Jews are going to rage against Christ. They're seeing this. And they say, God, you planned this. You're sovereign. Like no matter what they did, no matter what Rome does, no matter what the Jews did, you're sovereign over it all. You've written it out. You've planned it out. And they're seeing God as he is. But I want us to go to Psalm 2. So if you're about Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 2 real quick or flip to it on your phone. Um, you can keep a bookmark in Acts 4. I want you to see this with me. So 
just a little background, the Jewish people were a, an oral culture. And what that means was they didn't have much written down. They had the tablets written down. There was no printing press, and so mo- most cultures were oral. So they would memorize the Old Testament, the Torah, the Psalms. They would sing the Psalms, and they would have memorized this doctrine. And one of the things they would do is with the Psalms, when they, would, when they wanted to refer to the whole Psalm, they would have just talked about the first two verses of it, and then the whole rest of the Psalm would have flooded in for people. Because they would have completed it, right? Like a song. When someone starts singing a song and they stop, in your head, what happens? He's playing over and over and over again, right? Like sometimes you're walking around the house and you're like whistling a song and then your wife comes in or or a kid comes in from the other room whistling the same song. It's like, whoa, we're doing the same song, right? It's just because you heard one another, right? It's not magic. So they they would have heard those first two lines and their brain would have continued on to continue quoting what David said. And this is what he said. Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Check this out. This is what would have come to mind next. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then, when is then? When he returns again, he will speak to them in his wrath. He will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king, Jesus, on Zion, on my holy hill. What is this saying? God is not bothered, okay? God is not bothered by the Sanhedrin. God is not bothered by Pilate. God is not bothered by the crucifixion of Jesus. God is not bothered if all 12 of his disciples were martyred on the first day. They were martyred in the first few years. They were martyred on the first day of the church. God would not be bothered. He is looking down and laughing at the threats of small people, right? Because he's got a plan. He's set his king. Christ is king. And tell us today, there's a lot going on in our world right now to be bothered by, isn't there? There's a lot going on that, that makes you tremble. There's a lot going on that makes you wonder, well, man, I was making plans 10 years from now, but now I don't know what it's going to look like 10 years from now. I don't know what school's going to look like. I don't know what church is going to look like. I don't know what persecution is going to look like. There's turmoil all over the world. But if we look up, if we see God in heavens, he, he is laughing at the turmoil, right? He is holding enemies in derision. Putin is holding him in derision, Right? Not laughing at the, at the, at the carnage, but he's, he's laughing that Putin thinks that he can stand up in his pride and make himself God, right? That's what we're called to do as a church. When we come here week in and week out, we're not just coming here to be pumped up. Like, I don't want to tell you you're awesome, now go out and be the church. We want to tell you, no, God is awesome and he's not bothered. He's not bothered by your conflict at work. He's not bothered by your wayward children. He's not bothered by the chaos of the first few years of a, of a baby's life that just utterly flips your world upside down. Like he's not bothered by what you're going to do with your child. He's not bothered by any of it. Um, my daughter, Rose, she's two and a half now, and we, don't really, we aren't really around dogs very often. Like God's just ordained our life where we're not really around dogs. The only dog she's been around her whole life is a little fluffy white Maltese. You want to know what a Maltese is? I mean, like you could punt that thing 100 yards. It's tiny. Um, uh, and anyways, that's the only dog. So that's her only interaction with dogs. So her first interaction with another dog, we went into our friend's house uh, in Savannah, and we walk in, and she's been there a hundred times. She hasn't seen this dog before because it's always in the bedroom. She walks in, and right in the front door, there's like a coat wall right here, and you can't see around the edge, and they have a, a, a yellow lab. And that thing is like this tall, but, but Rose is like this tall, right? So, so this yellow lab is like a head taller than her, and it bursts around the corner like yellow labs do and comes right up to her face, <laughs> right, right there. 
And what we see is a happy lab. What she sees is giant canine teeth and a tongue and fire breathing on her face. And she makes a noise, the most inhuman noise I've ever heard in my entire life. Our friends were in the back of the house. They thought a fire alarm was going off in the house. Like It was unbelievable. It's like, ah! And, and she's trembling. She's shaking. She's paralyzed. I pick her up, and she's like scrambling up me like she's trying to climb up higher to get away from this yellow lab. It, it, I mean, give her some slack, guys. It's like a horse coming around the corner at you with teeth right? Like it, it was utterly terrifying for her. And for six months later, she was terrified of dogs. She still kind of is. But terif- when there's a dog, she like, she's just freezing, she starts scrambling up, like tries to climb us like a tree, like whoever's around because she can't get away. And, but what started happening is the more she's been around dogs, the more, the more she's gotten a little more comfortable. What she does now is when she sees a dog, she freezes, she starts shaking, but then she looks up at mom and dad and she looks at our faces, says, are they bothered? Are they bothered by this dog? And when she looks at us and she sees that we're not bothered by the dog, then she sets herself, she turns around, and she starts walking towards the dog to pet it. And then she'll get a little closer, and she'll get scared, and she'll look back at us. Are they bothered? No, we're not bothered. Okay. Okay, and get a little closer. And, and the fact that we're unbothered by the dog gives her courage to walk up to it. She doesn't have to be afraid. Like, a dog could tear apart a two-year-old, but she's not afraid because she knows that we're in control, right? Church, in the same way, you don't get your courage and your boldness from inside yourself. We get our boldness from looking at God and seeing that he is not bothered by the threats. He's not bothered by the things that happen here on this earth. Right? Um, and I don't know how bold you are with the gospel, but God has called you and me to be witnesses, to be his witnesses to Christ. He didn't just call Peter and John. I think it's significant that Peter and John went back to the church and that we see the entire church gathering together praying for boldness. Okay, that's significant because it's not just me and Andrew and, and some, some evangelist that's supposed to share the gospel. It's all of us. Like the Great Commission said, as you go, make disciples of all nations. Like as you're going to work, as you're going to the gym, as you're going to your family, make disciples, share the gospel. Guys, I, I, this is hard for me. I, I am not a bold person. And I can really easily get discouraged by this. Like, I'm not just saying this to open you up. Like, I'm legitimately not bold. Like, I get so afraid of the opinions of others. And I get really afraid of offending people. Like, I don't like offending people. And so I will change my words to make sure that it's not offending someone, okay? And so when I, when I see this, when I hear this call to gospel boldness, I can get really discouraged. Um, and and what, I've, what I've seen in me is that I, I can be ashamed of the gospel. So I want to ask you this morning, are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of God? I'll give you an example. Um, we, uh, when, when I, it wasn't until college that I realized this thing about women, that women have a bad side and a good side. Okay? Um, thank you, whoever said careful. Um, now, I, I know, are you tracking with me? Like, uh, like the side of their body, like for a picture, okay? The, the other's true too. But for a picture, they have a bad side and a good side. Sorry, I didn't clarify at the beginning. And so you would never know this, okay, if, 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 if there's pictures taking place, you'd never know this because they always position themselves well, right? But if a candid photo happens and you happen to like pull her in on the wrong side, she will pause the camera, take your arm off, walk all the way around you and get on this side and show this side of her, okay? My wife doesn't do this, but I've seen other women do this, okay? <laughs> um, and and, and they, because they want to show their good side, they want to hide their bad side, right? Am I the only one that's seen this? Okay, golly, okay, so, and, and here's the thing, humans are symmetrical, okay? 
We're symmetrical, like two eyes, two nostrils, two ears, like two eyebrows, sometimes as big as mine. Like we are all symmetrical, okay? But there's a side of us that that we can be afraid of, embarrassed by. And let me tell you something. If you're embarrassed by half of you, you're you're ashamed of yourself, okay? Like if you're ashamed of part of you, if you feel like there's part of you you need to like hide, then you're ashamed of yourself. In the same way, are you ashamed of parts of the gospel? Are there parts of God that you, when you talk about him, when you tell people you go to church, you try to turn him so that his good side's showing? Does that make sense to y'all? Because I do this, okay? Like, I'll talk about aspects of God that are palatable, that, like, make people smile and nod, but God's other aspects, like his wrath and his anger and hell and those things, I'll, I'll hide. And then when someone tries to walk around the back, I'll just kind of turn him, right? So that, so, that they, so that they never see that side of God. And let me tell you, that is the mark of someone who's ashamed of the gospel, God has called us to not be ashamed of the gospel. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. What does that mean? It means I'm not ashamed. It's the power of God. If I am ashamed, it's not going to be the power of God because I'm not going to preach it. I'm not going to preach the full gospel. If I'm scared of parts of it, I'm only going to preach a partial gospel, and it's not going to be the power of God for salvation. Church, we Christians in the room are called to share the whole gospel unflinchingly. Like Peter and John, they didn't try to mince their words before the Sanhedrin. They were blunt, they were honest, they weren't needlessly offensive, but they knew in order to bring someone, in order to invite someone to the faith, the gospel first needs to offend them. So are you scared of the gospel? Are you unashamed of the gospel? And I encourage you, look up at God, and let me tell you what you'll see when you look at God. Let's keep reading, verse 29, almost done, we're going to close with this. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. I hear some of you turning there. Acts 4, verse 29, find your place again. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let me tell you what you're going to see. When you look to God and ask him for boldness, you're going to see that he sees you. They say, look upon the threats. God, do you see us? Do you see these threats? That he hears us. God, hear us. Grant to your servants to continue to speak and that he acts. He fills them with his Holy Spirit and with boldness. Now, he doesn't shake the house now, right? That was a sign. That was a sign in the early church to show us that God heard their prayer. And if he heard their prayer, then he can hear our prayer today. So I encourage you, gather together with believers. If If you're lacking in courage with the gospel, Get together with other believers. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's someone in this church that knows Jesus. Get together and pray. Ask God for boldness. I want to be a church that boldly preaches the gospel. And let me tell you why. Because there are blind people in this world, just like the Sanhedrin, who are living their lives for their own desires. And they're blinded by their wants. And they don't see God as he is. And the gospel is the only thing that can free them from their blindness, that can open their blind eyes. And if you don't share it, they're never going to know. People are desperate to know God. So will you share the gospel? And you need boldness because it's offensive. It hurts. It's painful. It hurts you. It hurts me. It hurts other people. And yet the only way to go to the gospel is through the offense and to the invitation. Encourage you, church. Will you invite people? Like people to get on the boat, to hide in Christ, to get on the ark, to find peace and rest in him. Let me pray. Man's going to get up here. We're going to um, sing a song asking God um, to, to give this to us. God, we are desperate for you. God, we need you.
Holy Spirit, I, I need you. I need your grace. I need your boldness. I need you to come and move and work in me. And I know that there are people in our neighborhoods, people that come to our pools, people in our gyms, people in our workplaces, kids in our family, God, who need Jesus. They need the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the boldness to share it, God, that you would give us the courage. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that Jesus is constantly on our lips. God, that we would be a church that is unashamed of the gospel of God. Lord, we wouldn't feel like we have to position you, Jesus, position your gospel to make it palatable, but we would preach boldly in the name of Jesus. God, I pray, I'm convicted by this passage. Lord, I pray for those in this room that are convicted by this, Lord, um, Lord, that we would respond in faith, God, that we wouldn't forget this word, but that you would speak to us through it. God, we need you. I pray as we sing this song, we would be the cry of our hearts. Holy Spirit, that we need you to come and empower us as your people to bring Christ to the lost world. We love you. Praise things in your name. Amen. Y'all stand up with me as we worship. Download the Church Center app. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to start talking while you're doing that. You don't have to look at me. You can download it. We, we uh, use something called Planning Center. So we have an app now. Okay? Um, and uh, we, uh, some people on our team have been really working hard on it. And basically this app, I think it's going to help us communicate a whole lot better. Um, so I just wanted to make, make you aware of it. Go to Church Center. You find your church, CBC Richmond Hill, you enter in your phone number, you log in, and then every time you open it up, it'll open right up. And on it is if you're serving, raise your hand if you're on a serve team. All right, if you're serving, your serve schedule is on here, okay? If you want to talk to us, we have a connect card on here. You can click it and fill it out. We have our email, we have our website on here. Events, we have all of our events on here. You can register for right now. So I'm about to announce an event I want you to register for, so go ahead and keep downloading the app. Um, we have events on here. We have all the sermons. You can hear Andrew's lovely voice whenever you want to, right? If you're serving up in kids, you can hear the sermon. It'll be downloaded in here on Monday. We have serve teams. You can, all our serve teams are on here, right? Kids discipleship at the top, okay? Shameless plug, right? But we have all our serve teams on here. You can click on it. You can get all the information you want. Fill out a form. Ask us questions about serve teams. We have giving on here. Some of you, a lot of questions have come in about how do I go online to give. We have a link to our giving platform where you can sign up online, right? This is a useful app, is it not? Is it useful? Yes, yes it's very useful. I will use this app. Will you say that to me? I will use this app. There we go. Okay, cool. So, if, yeah, I see none of you are looking down at your phones downloading the app. It's okay. That's uh, all right. So, what I wanted to tell you about is what, next week is starting our membership class, okay? And the reason I want you to download the app is you can sign up right on your phone, like to that class. But if you don't have your phone up, go online, sign up for the membership class, fill out a Connect card, write down membership. It's going to take place between the two services. Uh, it's from 1015 to 1045, which leads into my second announcement. We're going to two services. If you weren't here last week, and that's a surprise to you, we're going to 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock service. And you know what I'm already confident in? Richmond Hill is such a small place. If you weren't here last week, you already heard about it, okay? Because we actually had people telling us about our two services before we knew, okay? So it just happens that word gets around two services, 9 and 11, and we're going to have coffee and cookies at 1015, okay? So coffee and cookies will be during, in, in between the services. So come for that fellowship together and go to one of the services. And one of the reasons we're doing this is we have more space in this room. Look around, some empty seats in here. Where do we not have more space? Kids' rooms, okay? It's chaos, right? So we need more space in our kids' rooms. So we're doing this to free up space and also to free up you. Some of you have been like, I'd love to serve, but I don't want to miss church. 
So this will free you up to go to one service and serve during the other. So we'd love for you all to go ahead and sign up. So we have our sign-up sheets for kids out in the hallway again with some pens. Just write your name down, um, your phone number, and we'll get you in the system. We'll get you signed up for that for the kids. So uh, we're just trying to do another big push this week before we launch into two services because we're going to need twice the volunteers next week for that. And just so excited that we get to partner um, with our kids and do that. So um, for those of you that are new here, uh, please fill out a Connect card. Let us know you're here. Or fill it out on the app, right? Let us know that you're new here. Uh, but we're not finished yet. After we get our kids, uh, we have coffee and cookies. And this week, it's going to be out here, okay? So it's a beautiful day. We're going to be on the veranda this week for coffee and cookies. So go get your kids. Come out here. Hang out for a while. Be family. Um, and then I want you to go and be the church. And before you do, forgot the benediction. So I want you all to stand with me. I'm going to give us the benediction. And then we're going to be dismissed together. So in the passage we read, we didn't really get to hit on it, but Peter and John answered the Sanhedrin, and they said this, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. May we be a people that listen to God rather than man. May we be a people that speak of what we have seen and heard and experienced in the gospel. Amen? Let us be that church today. Go and be the church. We'll see you next week. Thanks.